So there isn't the transparency in the traditional markets as there is in Bitcoin. So I, I, I'm not sure or convinced yet, although I'm open to this, you know, persuasion, that there could be the same kind of shenanigans in the Bitcoin market because of the transparency that it provides and also the type of network that it is. Like, we demand proof. Are you or your loved ones looking to secure and manage your Bitcoin with confidence? The Bitcoin Advisor is your premier destination for professional Bitcoin management, helping you buy, secure and manage your Bitcoin so you can own intergenerational wealth and sleep easy. With a reputation built on unparalleled security, strategic planning and comprehensive client education, the Bitcoin Advisor team have managed over $1 billion in assets without losing a single Satoshi since 2016. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or a seasoned investor, the Bitcoin Advisor team are there to guide you every step of the way. So please click on the link below to organize yourself a consultation and include the name Carrie, C-A-R-R-I, in the referral code so that they know that I've sent you their way. Hello and absolutely delighted to have with me today Jamie Coots, who is a TradFi guy who has worked with Tudor in the hedge fund space and also with Bloomberg as a crypto analyst, albeit he is a massive Bitcoin guy. Welcome to Bitcoin People, Jamie Coots. Thank you very much for having me, Carolyn. It's great to have you here, Jamie. Uh, you and I have had the privilege of meeting before, which is why I'm thrilled to have you on the show or how I came to have you on the show. Uh, I was, in fact, helping you out. You were a keynote speaker at the recent crypto convention here in Melbourne, Australia, and we were in touch and I gave you a bit of support and guidance as you put your content together so as not to completely overwhelm the audience with your amazing depth of knowledge and statistics and data. Uh, so that was delightful to meet you. Uh, you've, you're incredibly um, knowledgeable in this space. The depth of your data is phenomenal. And so we're gonna be going about this a little bit differently today. And you're going to be making a presentation to us and going through some slides and some content or, or some you know data-driven content. Before you do, Jamie, can you give us a little bit more background than I've been able to do? Yeah, so um, 20 years in the space, or a little bit over 20 years. Uh, I started in Australia working for Credit Suisse. Uh, I was a stockbroker, so I was really an equity specialist in equity derivatives, high net worth individuals. Um, that's where I sort of cut my teeth. It happened, like I came into the market or came into the industry just at the end of the tech bubble. So 1999, which was um, you know, a pretty torrid time to be sort of a new stockbroker or someone new to the industry. Um, and it really taught me, I guess, in many ways was so beneficial because it taught me a lot of things about markets early on that I didn't necessarily have to learn about later. Although there's a constant learning process in the markets, it's a pretty humbling, um, pretty humbling um, experience or thing to be a part of. So I started there and then um, I moved to London and moved to the institutional side of things. I was a trader. Um, out of London. At that time, we were covering Asian markets. So, um, you know, I was very much sort of involved in um, uh, a lot of the hedge fund and asset management community that were heavily invested into Japan and Hong Kong at that time. And um, I even worked on a night desk. So I was actually trading through the, through the night in the UK, which was pretty brutal. 
Um, and then we opened up an office in Singapore um, just before the GFC and moved to Singapore, headed up the desk, um, sort of moved into sales, um, sales trading, sales research. Uh, and then, you know, I, a couple of years later, I moved to the buy side. I worked for um, Tudor Capital. So Paul Tudor Jones's um, macro hedge fund on the equity long short um, funds when they had equities as part of their um, mix. And before it became or before it was reverted back to a family office. So Paul Tudor Jones um, sort of, I guess, um, re-engineered the, 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 um, the hedge fund into a family office um, for various different reasons. Um, you know, the, the hedge fund space has changed since when he first got into it um, to what it is today. Um, and so there, after that, I moved to Bloomberg, um, worked in Singapore again for like 14 years and for 10 years at Bloomberg um, on a couple of different things, but running some products and some strategy roles um, for crypto markets when um, Bloomberg really didn't have much of a product in that space. So before 2021, and then I moved in to become their crypto market research analyst um, in 2021, 2022. So I built you know, valuation models and really, um, you know, sort of try to bridge the the divide between the traditional investment world where we have hundreds, hundreds of billions and trillions in, in capital invested in traditional markets into the crypto world by uh, providing some sort of basis for fundamental analysis in the space. So looking at on-chain data, um, marrying that with um, the macro drivers to try and explain, you know, what gives crypto assets their value because there's been a lot of um, conjecture around this for the longest time. Um, one of the most often leveled criticisms of Bitcoin is that there is no intrinsic value, which is kind of funny terms because intrinsic value is extremely subjective. Um, so I did that and, and built those models for Bitcoin and other crypto assets. But you know, Bitcoin is my is my passion and really my primary focus. Fantastic. It's a um, it's an enormous background and we're incredibly privileged to have you in this space. Uh, I have to ask you before we get into it, tell us about the uh, guitar in the background. Yeah, so this is a um, this is an Eric Clapton signed Fender. Um, I picked it up at an auction, really probably not as much as you might think, given what I think it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty awesome um, piece of memorabilia. Um, but I, I, I mean, I don't play. Like, I have no musical talent whatsoever. I have extremely strong musical ears, as you can see. And so I have a, <laughs> a depth knowledge of, like, classical rock, and that's really been my thing. So this is, like, my pride and joy. I think when you first told me that, I went up to you and told you that my best friend dated Eric Clapton for a while back in the day. Oh, that totally went up to me, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a hundred of these, apparently. There's only one of that. Right. Wow. Okay. Absolutely fantastic. Well, look, we're going to get into it and you're going to be taking us through uh, three or four charts and we're going to be starting with a bit of on-chain and then we're going to go into some kind of liquidity and broader issues. And I think there's a bunch of questions that are going to come out from all of this. So I'm really interested and intrigued because you come at this data very differently, really, from anybody else in the space. And a lot of this is your own custom uh, content. And so I'm keen to get started. So I'm gonna let you share your screen. 
Yeah, so what I thought I might do, just before we get into the on-chain data, um, I think it's really helpful to sort of frame why Bitcoin is important and how it sort of fits in within sort of the macro landscape. So I thought what I might do is, if I just bring this up and you can hopefully tell me whether that's all clear on your end. Yep. Can you see that? Okay. Um, talk about sort of liquidity, um, because it's okay. if you're following Bitcoin, you're a- always seeing liquidity uh, being used as a reason for um, Bitcoin either rising or falling. But the term liquidity is um, probably, I mean, it's 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 defined differently by different folks and depending on sort of the way they look at the markets. But essentially. Liquidity represents a couple of things. It re- represents the, um, I guess, the credit in the system, um, how much or uh, how easy it is for banks to to loan and to provide their credit functions. It is a, a determined by the um, the level or the rate of money, or the price of money, which is essentially the interest rates that the central banks set for the for the economy, um, and it also includes like the volatility of the collateral of the global economy which is really us treasuries so we we live in a fiat fractional reserve system it's a debt-based system the collateral of the system is us debt and so all of these things sort of describe liquidity so you can look at it through a couple of different lenses and the first chart that i'm showing here is looking at two things the first thing is central bank balance sheets and so that's the blue line on the screen here. So we're looking at central bank balance sheets from 2010 all the way to 2023. And I've just overlaid the Bitcoin price. Now, we can see that both of these gone, have gone up over time. You know, if you're a quantitative or statistical sort of minded person, that doesn't necessarily mean causation, right? They've sort of, they've, they've actually, um, you know, increased over time, but does one cause the other? Um, and I'll come to that in a, in a little bit, but it's very clear that central banks have added more stimulus into the global financial system because their balance sheets have been expanding. That means that they've been buying assets from banks and financial institutions. Usually it's sovereign debt. In some cases, such as in um, 2020, they went to extraordinary measures and even bought um, corporate bonds. Um, they also own um, mortgage-backed securities. And by doing that, that actually frees up the, the bank's balance sheets to so they can continue to conduct their normal everyday uh, functions, which is to lend, provide credit into the into the economy. And so we can see that the central banks have played a increasingly large role in the global economy. If I took this chart back over the last forty years, really we can see that the the rate of change of the balance sheets has actually accelerated in terms of it increasing over the last decade. So we're in very extraordinary times. And so <clears throat> with that, you know, you had in 2009 the, the birth of Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin was really a response to a couple of different things or a couple of different needs. One was the, um, the issue of constant debasement through the through a fiat-based um, system or a, cre- a fiat-based credit-based system because there's nothing tethered, that, you know, that the currencies of the world are all fiat. So they're not tethered to anything physical or scarce. They can be printed into oblivion 
and through every new loan that's issued by a commercial bank, that's new money entering the system. And so there is a constant debasement that's taking place. That was, you know, one of the, I believe, one of the um, notions behind Satoshi's work. But the other thing was really, you know, a way for people to transfer value without a centralized or a centralized um, third party or an intermediary. And so <clears throat> the problem that we're seeing today is this ever-growing centralization of governments, whether it's at the national level or whether it's at the global level, and increasing censorship or freedom of expression, freedom of movement. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin network is a censorship-free way to transfer value, whereas the fiat-based system is um, very much restricted and becoming ever more so. And the unit of account in the fiat money system are dollars or the fiat currencies of everyone's national um, or wherever they live, which country they live, which is constantly being debased because that is the way a credit-based fiat system essentially works. So when you look at the, the financial system, it really Bitcoin is a byproduct of what was happening even before the GFC. And ever since the GFC, the reason why Bitcoin has become more valuable is because we can see that the trends that took that were in place have only accelerated ever since. And so there is a very close relationship between global liquidity and or debasement that's happening and the price of, the, of Bitcoin, the asset. And so... Yeah. Can I ask some questions or you want to keep sure. going? No, no. Okay. Yep. I, I want to ask some really basic questions. Uh, I'm going to ask which of the six central banks as a starting point that this is based on? The US, Japan, Bank of England, Europe, China, and uh, did I mention Canada? I did I mention Japan? It's, it's either, so BOJ is in there. I can't remember whether it's China or whether it's um, uh, Canada in this series. Okay. All right. So, that blue line is referring to say so it's it's the combined uh assets of all of those central banks which is um predominantly as you said treasury bonds but also some corporate bonds they got into and and even mortgage-backed securities so it's all of that stuff it includes uh gold because i understand particularly china owns quite a bit in the way of gold in their reserves um, is my understanding. So that fast acceleration in 2020, that's obviously the COVID money printing via the issuance of greater numbers of treasuries. So, it, okay. This is, um, so I would just say that the, the response that we saw in um, 2020, and 2021 was yeah. really the central bank's aggressor for um, debt instruments in the economy. So they took a lot of debt off the balance sheets of the banks and replaced them with essentially bank reserves and that provided liquidity to the to the banks. And so, yeah, the response that we saw in, um, in 2020 was unprecedented in nature. And if I was to show you another chart, which I won't, but another chart of just the money in circulation, right? So M2 money supply, yep. which is <clears throat> a reflection of the credit um, issued from banks. 
that also responded to the interventions from central banks. And over the 2020 period to 2022, the number of currency units, because this doesn't represent currency units, this is essentially financial mm. liquidity to the banks. The banks then issue the currency or issue credit into the economy, and that shows up in M2. But that number increased by about 40% over two years, and it was the largest year-on-year increase that we'd seen for many, many decades. And so obviously that's played into what we're seeing today with inflation. There was just much more currency that was issued at that time, and all things being equal, that just means that the price of goods will naturally will naturally increase. So it was such a ma- you know such a massive response um, at that time, really unprecedented. Absolutely, and that's something we talk about quite a lot in the Bitcoin community, and that the rest of the world seems to have trouble picking up um, because what we forever hear is that inflation is caused by price gouging, which is one of the discussion points on Twitter I can't go anywhere near because it drives me mad. Um, With the issue of Treasury bonds, help me understand this. So in effect, they're basically foisted on the commercial banks as thou shalt take this, thou shalt buy this from us. Yeah. So the banks don't have a choice around that. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're one of the banks um, that are, you know, in the, the closed sort of community of um, that the Fed uses to basically buy the debt, they will buy it. They have to. They have to buy it essentially. But then they sell that on to um, other participants in the economy or keep it on their balance sheet. So they're a sort of pass through mechanism. Who who wants treasury bonds anymore? Well, certainly not foreign governments. Not unless yeah. um, I mean everyone wants an asset at a certain price. So. At the moment, we've seen, um, you know, the two largest buyers of U.S. Treasuries, which was China and also Japan, either start to really, you know, pull back on those um, purchases. And in the case of um, China, that's been sort of a, a policy of theirs since 2013, 2014. Um, so there is a there is a dwindling number of buyers at current levels. That may change, right? So, I mean. You know, if their interest rate was nine percent, then you might see a little bit more interest in the in the product itself, right? There's always a there's always a buyer at a certain price, but obviously the U.S. government can't allow that to happen given the indebtedness of the U.S. government. So, at these levels, there doesn't seem to be as much interest as ever before in U.S. Treasuries, and that's a real concern for the government, for the central bank. And is the reason why at some point we will likely see, and at least in my view, the central bank have to step in and be the buyer of US government bonds in the same way as the Bank of Japan is the buyer of their debt, JGBs. Okay. Yes, indeed. So the drop-off that we're seeing from, uh, say, the beginning of 2022 uh, in the liquidity, is that a reduction in assets or is that a deceleration of growth? So it's actually a reduction and they do it via two ways. They either sell the assets or they let some of their assets roll off, expire. 
Right. And so it's been a combination of both of those things. And, um, you know, so we, we had a similar episode in 2018. If you can see yeah. back on the chart there, there's um, 2018 where they um, conducted quantitative tightening for around two years or a little yep. under two years before yep. they had to step back in. And what's, what's interesting is that, you know, after such a small reduction, if you look at the, the rate of change of the balance sheet over the over the period of 2010 to 2018 and the quantitative the period where quantitative tightening took place and how small that was relative to the increase and what had to follow was something even larger in terms of an increase so you're starting to see like these very large accelerations to the upside after they tried to pull back or after they tried to withdraw liquidity after some period of time and so You'll also see on the chart, I've got another chart which makes this a little bit more clearer, but that peak in 2017 Bitcoin price coincides very nicely with the peak in the um, balance sheet, the, the global balance sheets of 2018 as well. And so <clears throat> the bottom also sort of coincides pretty nicely with the turnaround in um, monetary policy as well. Now, the top in um, Bitcoin in 2021 came before the peak in the central bank balance sheets, which was a little bit later. But if you remember back to 2021, it was as clear to everyone who wasn't a Keynesian economic, uh, economist that they were going to have to tighten because inflation was well above their target levels. And obviously the money printing and the um, central bank interventions were having um, you know, a, a, an effect which I knew at the time and you know, people who have any common sense would understand that what they did was always going to cause inflation, but the mainstream economists were ignorant to the fact or um, whether willfully or, um, you know, or just really were completely oblivious to the realities of economics and so I think Bitcoin topped in 2021 ahead of what they, the market knew was coming, which was tightening. Now, the Fed didn't actually change policy until Q1 of, of 2022. But that's why Bitcoin is such a fantastic barometer for global liquidity, because I think Luke Roman was the person who coined this phrase. But, you know, Bitcoin is the last functioning fire alarm in the economy. It knows the subtle differences in changes in liquidity and monetary policy before you get, you know, the, the 12 anointed ones from the Federal Reserve and the, and the Grandmaster Poobah who gets up and talks every month or two months about interest rate policy um, and tells the market what they're going to do. Obviously, the market is forward-looking and understands and Bitcoin is the best barometer to understand monetary policy through. The canary in the coal mine. Okay. So it... I'm just going to stick with the chart for a moment and I'm going to state a couple of what seem like really obvious uh, discrepancies. One is the the size. Oh, I suppose this is logarithmic. But are they both logarithmic? Mm. So what I was going to say was the size of the increase of liquidity in 2020, mid-2020, versus the size of the escalation of the Bitcoin price don't seem in proportion. What's that about? It's a very good observation, Carolyn. 
Um, I'm just changing the right-hand scale, which is the central bank balance sheets, to a logarithmic chart as well. Oh, right. So you okay. are looking at both of these axes. And I, the only reason I didn't didn't actually change that right-hand scale was just so that it became oh, so so much clearer to the viewers about the how big that change was. But even on a logarithmic um, scale here, you can see that it was unprecedented. So the percentage mm. change, the, the speed of change, the rate of change um, was so much more aggressive in 2020 than even the previous sort of eight or nine years, despite the fact that they, that that period was unprecedented. If you look back at the previous 60 or 70 years. Right which we'd have to see. Have you got that anywhere? Um, I don't have the long-term the long term chart because the time series doesn't go back that yeah, far, yeah. unfortunately. Fair enough. Um, but what I can do is maybe if I could just bring up this chart here. Okay, so this, this is just another way of visualising that same data, but I'm just going to make it easier and only focus on two time series. So this is the same... Um, time series as the previous chart, but instead of looking at the nominal change of both, we're looking at the rate of change. Right. And so it's not perfect, but you can see that when the blue line starts to increase, so when the balance sheets start to expand, Bitcoin yep. starts to also increase. So you get the bottoms almost within a couple of months, you get the tops within a couple of months of one another. And this and is US only, yeah? This is, again, the central bank, the US, uh, sorry, the, the G6 central bank balance sheets. Oh, G6. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. We're looking at a 12-month rate of change rather than just the the nominal value of those, um, of those indices. Yeah. And so, you know, you can see how, how aggressive the, the run-ups are in Bitcoin relative to the liquidity responses. Um, except for 2020, that was like the response from the central banks was even greater than the response of the Bitcoin price. Um, and we, you know, end of 2022, so Q4 down here, what happened? The degree in which, so this is measuring the rate of change. So it's not saying that the central bank balance sheets have stopped contracting. It's saying that the speed of the contraction has decelerated. Mm -hmm. And that is essentially all it takes because then you're starting to see the end of the tunnel end or the light at the end of the tunnel for this phase that we've gone through of extraordinarily tight um, liquidity. So when they started contracting, they, uh, they contracted very aggressively in 2022. QT was at a certain rate. Um, interest rates went from zero to sort of three, 4% very quickly. So the rate of change was so sharp and so severe, all assets sold off very aggressively. And obviously Bitcoin and the entire crypto ecosystem did as well. But as soon as we started to see that deceleration and start to see that um, the, the central bank balance sheets, whilst it was still declining, stopped declining so fast because what happened in Q4, which some people might not be aware of, is that Bank of England had a crisis and Japan had, sorry, England had a crisis, Japan had a crisis. And in both instances, their central banks actually reversed or um, intervened to basically save their sovereign debt market. And it didn't get as much airplay, but that 
sort of that also signaled to the market that the end game is in sight, that the central banks, because of the level of sovereign indebtedness, can't allow their sovereign debt markets to explode or to crater. And so they had to intervene in both occasions. And that was just enough for assets to basically bottom. It wasn't just Bitcoin. There was the S&P and NASDAQ rallied all throughout this year. It's just that obviously Bitcoin is this hyper-volatile asset. It has asymmetric returns and it obviously outperforms other assets when liquidity increases. Okay, understood. So what I find interesting about this is, well, there's many interesting things about this, but I guess the question comes into play. It's almost like we've got adoption and that S-curve of adoption of new technology and therefore number go up in, uh, in relation to that as a growth asset but then it's being impacted on the other side by this correlation with liquidity. Do you see a decoupling between those over time? Yes, yeah, so there are, you're absolutely right. Um, there's the structural trend that's taking place, which is technological advancement, blockchain technology being adopted. Um, technology, sorry, Bitcoin being adopted as a store of value and for the different, the various monetary qualities that it possesses. But you can see no matter what the adoption is, it's still very closely related to the liquidity cycle. Because at the end of the day, what is the use case? The use case is a, you know, censorship resistant medium of exchange, but also a store of value. If we lived in a world where we had a currency with, which tethered maybe back to gold or a basket of commodities and our governments weren't able to spend as liberally as they do. They, and the amount of credit creation wasn't as high as it is today. The level of debasement wasn't as severe as it is today. You could argue that the case for Bitcoin is somewhat more diminished. So whilst the temporal relation, like the time-based relationships between liquidity and Bitcoin may change over time. I think that, and, and, and maybe in a way that actually will, you know, I've written about this as well. It won't take as much monetary stimulus in the future for Bitcoin adoption to still continue um, because effectively what Bitcoin needed in the very early stages was central banks just to do central banks. Right, to do their thing. So the way I think about it is that basically central banks, ironically, have bootstrapped the Bitcoin network. They brought in millions and millions of people into this alternative monetary system, this alternative store of value as a protest vote against them. And even if they self-correct, they reform, which is extremely hard at this point in the debt cycle, even if they do, it's almost too late. Bitcoin has reached escape velocity. Hmm. So we don't need a, a 2020 COVID stimulus response for this asset class to go up. It just needs to basically, you know, to reverse the current tightening. And it will have to because interest payments from US debt by the, the US government is now over a trillion dollars. 
and is reaching the point where they're, you know, they're essentially issuing new debt to pay off the old debt. And so that's called a debt spiral. And I know you've spoken to James Lavish, who does fantastic work around this. And so <clears throat> they will have to inter intervene in, in, in my view. And so, great, that's good for Bitcoin. Um, but it doesn't need as much as it has in the, it doesn't need as much liquidity as it has in the past is, is the point. If or when do we see uh, the central banks starting to put Bitcoin on their balance sheets? We won't see it from any of the, the G6 countries for a long time, I don't think. But the countries that have got more to lose in the current financial order are the ones that will likely look to adopt. Um, and it's, it's funny because it sounds so fanciful. And even now, you know, you talk to mainstream folks, they'll say it never happens. Well, it's it's a more than 0% chance we've already seen, you know, a, a nation, two nation states as insignificant as they are already do it. And so six years ago, that would have been inconceivable. Now we have two. But the interesting thing is you've almost already got it through a sort of, you know, a de facto um, policy, which is around energy. So let me explain that. We've got three countries in the Middle East, several now in South America and a couple in Asia, which are mining Bitcoin as a national energy imperative because they may have excess energy, they may have stranded energy. Um, in the case of the UAE, they have overbuilt their grid. And so what I mean by that is they've got nuclear power, they've got solar, and they've got a lot of gas. And so in their economy, which is the polar opposite of economies like ours here, Carolyn, where our national policy is to underdevelop the grid and which is causing unbelievable price inflation in energy from unreliable energy sources and the throttling of abundant, cheap, dense energy and the reluctance to adopt nuclear energy, these countries have so much energy that they're trying to monetize it. And by monetizing it and putting Bitcoin miners on their, on their grid or behind the meter, they effectively lower the tariffs for the citizens of that country. So they enjoy you know, abundant energy, cheap energy. And what is that doing? That's bringing in businesses. It's growing their economy. And so if they, if they are working in partnership with private companies or even state-owned um, enterprises that have got mining rigs, well, part of that inventory is Bitcoin. Now, most Bitcoin miners sell the Bitcoin to cover the costs and to realise that, you know, the, the main objective is to raise fiat. But essentially, you've got countries now with Bitcoin mining as part of their strategic energy policies. And so de facto, they're basically invested in Bitcoin. They're putting it on their balance sheets. It's not as direct as a central bank owning it as a reserve asset, but it's a very important step. But in terms of like central banks um, putting on their balance sheet, you know, any, any economy, any small emerging economy is being ravaged by inflation that is essentially just, you know, it's interesting what Malay is going to do in Argentina, but, you know, if you're a, if you're a country that's got your um, currency pegged to the US dollar, you're at the whim of US monetary policy. And obviously they're heading into some form of a debt spiral. And so, you know, for them, 
they've got far more to lose. They don't have control of their monetary policy. <clears throat> so one thing they could do is put um, Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And it's really a question of position size. So I don't think Bitcoiners are saying go out and basically just replace all reserve assets um, on, the, on the central bank balance sheet with Bitcoin. Some might. I think that's a bit extreme. But maybe that's the same sort of approach that personal retail um, and investors like us approach. It's like maybe it's 1%, maybe it's 5%, you know, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's more, who knows. But the question is you got to get off zero. And so I think we'll see over the next four or five years, smaller countries that have got far more to lose um, take a position on Bitcoin. So the small countries, particularly those ravaged with inflation, there's a really obvious use case. Uh, Russia, because of the whole SWIFT debacle, has got a really obvious use case. Uh, I haven't thought quite so much, and I should have done, about the Middle East. But of course, the whole petrodollar thing is, again, to, or to get out of the petrodollar and to have an alternate currency. Uh, I don't know that the BRICS nations more broadly could agree on that. Uh, but I can imagine one or two countries within the Middle East being attracted to it or to the idea of trading in it, given a lack of trust necessarily for each other's currencies, but an interest in having a neutral third party currency. Um, what are your what's your insider knowledge or understanding or research around that? Well, I think that so Middle East in countries that have, um, you know, developed two things, have developed an interest in, in Bitcoin uh, mining. So mm -hmm. I would see that as an intermediary step, potentially mm -hmm. to owning it on their balance sheet. But they've also introduced, um, you know, fairly progressive regulations around crypto in general, so not just Bitcoin. So they kind of see the whole space as um, an area of innovation for their economy. And so countries that get familiar with the industry, that bring Bitcoin mining in for whatever reason, whether it's stranded, whether it's excess, whether it's to subsidize renewable projects, which have lower ROI, which they do, um, especially in countries where it's, it's not natural to have it. Um, these are all intermediary steps. And so the Middle East seems to be ahead of the rest of the world. I mean, you've got other small countries that are, are doing this. You've got El Salvador with volcano mining and, um, I think they've also maybe got some solar projects or wind projects as well, which they're attaching um, adjacently to Bitcoin mining. Um, and Bhutan has got a, this massive hydro um, um, asset, which they're monetizing um, with Bitcoin. So, but it's certainly, when you think about like of all those countries, which ones are sort of leading the um, economic growth and innovation um, sort of charge globally? You know, the UAE is becoming a very important centre globally for global capital. And so you can see it sort of just evolving naturally there. This episode of Bitcoin People proudly brought to you by BitRefill, your one-stop shop for living on Bitcoin and Lightning and building out the Bitcoin economy and this Bitcoin world we would all love to see come to fruition. They've got all the best gift cards like Amazon, Apple, Bunnings, Airbnb, Uber and much more. They've got Coles and Woolies for your groceries, bill fairies to pay your bills, BP and Ampol for your petrol. You can do your hotel bookings or top up your phone credit or buy a gift or phone credit for a friend or loved one overseas. So check them out today, bitrefill.com and remember to put Bitcoin people in the referral code for 10% Bitcoin back on your first purchase. 
Wow, fascinating. I do love all of that, and I certainly didn't know about Bhutan, um, one of the places high on my list of, like, bucket list countries. Okay, fantastic. Let's move on from here then. Let's get into, well, of your choice, which was it the on-chain that we wanted to have a look at as well? Yeah. Um, let me just bring up this dashboard. So hopefully that is clear on your end. Um, I'm just, um, so I've talked about sort of the macro drivers, which are critical. If there, if there wasn't the macro reason for or the, the, um, the conditions in place, yeah, Bitcoin wouldn't be as valuable as it is today. So once you sort of establish why it's necessary, then what I try to do is look on chain to see how healthy is the Bitcoin economy, right? So Bitcoin is a, it's a monetary network. It's a way for you and I to exchange value that is centralized or, um, you know, intermediary um, and to do so relatively quickly and relatively cheaply. And so <clears throat> there's that aspect. And then there's the aspect of, um, of holding this digitally scarce asset with a cap supply. And these two forces are what sort of drive the value of the network. And so I break it down in as simple as approach as I possibly can. There is unbelievable value within on-chain data and creating lots of different custom metrics, some of it for trading purposes and for the investment community to look at and to sort of to derive alpha from. But what I'm trying to do is tell the story of just if this was an economy, you know, is it healthy? Is it growing? Um, what are the things that either are concerning or, or not so concerning or, or um, very, very positive? And try to marry that to what the price is doing to say, okay, it's undervalued or overvalued. And so <clears throat> all I've done here is I've broken the um, what I call the adoption drivers. So I look at the number of users and how it's being used. I look at the transactions. So, you know, maybe if I just focus on the users here, before yeah. we go to the other sections, but <clears throat> the number of active addresses or the number of people actively using it. So transferring value more than once a day. Okay. Um, so then that number is just shy of about a million. If we look over the last 12 months, that active addresses is up about 10%, but it's actually around 13% below where it was three years ago. Right. So, a little bit of stagnation uh, on the network over time, but generally um, pretty positive performance in the last year. And so the next one I just want to point out is the number of non-zero balances. So you can just think of this as the number of people, the number of addresses that own Bitcoin. And I use the term, or I use the word people or person when I describe addresses, but they're not really the same thing. It's just a proxy. So an address can represent thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, and one person can represent multiple addresses. It's more likely that this is an underestimation of the number of people by many factors, maybe four. So when we look at number of non-zero balance addresses of around 50 million, we're probably looking at a number of about 200 million people that have exposure to Bitcoin. And so that number has, the, the number's at all-time highs, right? It's in the 100th percentile ranking of its, of its entire history, and it's up about 
on the last 12 months, and it's up about 53% in the last three years. So what's this telling me? It's that the activity, the high-frequency activity on the network for moving value, in terms of the number of addresses, that's actually sort of stagnated over three years. I mean, it's not down by a great deal, 12 13%. But the number of people who have, like, bought it and have created an address, that has just consistently gone up, irrespective of price, irrespective of the 70% drawdown that we saw in the last year. That just marched higher every month, month after month, month after month. So are we talking about hodlers versus... Um, transactors, uh, people actually using it as a medium of exchange. Is that the difference here? Why one somewhat, but there's the a way to yeah. there's a there's some yeah somewhat, but there's a better way to measure that. So right. there's a term called accumulated addresses. So if you if anyone follows on chain data, there's things like um, long term supply. So people addresses that have held the Bitcoin for more than six months versus the short term supply. Yeah. And so that's a great way to measure. Are people hodling? And that number is also up and to the right. It's at an all-time high. I use something um, called accumulation addresses, which is an address that has received Bitcoin twice, not just once. It's received it okay. twice and yep. never sold it. Right. So okay. That number is pretty much at all-time highs. It's in the 99th percentile. So there's 856,000 accumulation addresses. So there's lots of different ways. As you can look at it, but all of those metrics, Caroline, um, if, if you're trying to understand what a hodler is doing, they are all at all-time highs. So they were completely price agnostic. They didn't care that Bitcoin fell. They continued to do what they've been doing for the last five or six years and buy Bitcoin, add to their Bitcoin stack. But the number of um, sort of the, the economic value, which is really captured more so in this next session called transactions, that's a slightly different story. So the number of transactions on chain is really quite close to all-time highs. But so that's about 537,000 each day on the Bitcoin mm -hmm. network. So yep. I mean, these are pretty decent numbers for a yep. decentralized grassroots monetary network. Um, it's doing pretty well. In terms of transfer volume, it moves about 2.24 billion every day. And that's yeah. reasonably high, 96th percentile, but it is sort of, um, it is down about 60% from 2021. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, I, and this is all, of course, on chain. Sorry, this is all, of course, on chain. So therefore, it's not taking into account what's going on on Lightning. Yeah. Not yeah, exactly. This is all on the base yeah. chain. Absolutely. Which, and, yeah. you know, Lightning is having an impact here. We can't. It's hard to quantify that, but it, more value transferring on Lightning is value that's not transferring on the base chain. So it's starting to impact these numbers. So that's definitely a consideration when you're looking at it. Um, but essentially, I guess the, the, the story here is that transactions are up, transfer volumes are down on where they were three years ago, and the median transfer value, the size of the transfer is actually you know, at rock bottom levels, 21 cents. And so the reason for this, because it doesn't make sense when you first look at it, number of transactions are up, but the transfer uh, volumes are kind of down, but the, and the medium transfer is like way down at all time lows or thereabouts nearly. And that is the impact of um, the block space being used a lot more for ordinals. 
Oh, right. That development really screwed up the, the on-chain metrics this year because they came out of nowhere, a brand new use case for block space. People are using the block space for ordinals, but the average ordinal transaction is very small. And so that's impacted the median transfer value, the transfer volumes as well. And it's also just coincided with still a year where, um, you know, we're still coming out of the, the bear market. So hmm. what we'll see in the future, it's very hard to tell, but yeah, I think as, as activity for the, 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 the primary use case of Blockspain, which is, uh, sorry, of, block, of uh, Bitcoin, which is to transfer value, as that increases and that takes up more of the block space, fees will increase and it will be just a little bit more expensive for the ordinals transactions on the network. And they may, and that may decline. And that's just if Bitcoin follows its usual cycle where prices go up, you know, more on-chain activity, fees go up in response, and that just sort of consumes block space. And so these less economically valuable, I'm not saying that they're um, worthless, like that is a completely subjective term. Like this, this network can be used for many different things like storing data. Um, WikiLeaks have put their files up on it. It's a transparent accounting ledger. Um, so there is no right or wrong, but economics will come into play when it's advantageous to use it for certain things. And so this year, because volumes have been and values have been low on the network, not as much has been moving. Ordinals have come out of nowhere. And that's been great for miners because it's given them extra fees that they otherwise wouldn't have had but it may change as we get into this bull cycle. Okay. I, I am not going to ask any questions around that because I simply don't understand enough about ordinals and how they work. And I'm sure plenty of other people would have a whole bunch of intelligent questions for you. And I just don't. Sorry. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, even it's, I haven't used ordinals and I'm not into NFTs, uh, not until we start to see NFTs around music a little bit more because that's my thing. But um, yeah, yes. but you can see it, you can see it on chain. So again, like it's just one of the wonderful things about this um, data set and about this asset class. Um, you don't get the real time analysis of what's happening on networks like Facebook or Amazon until the quarterly reporting, um, you know, of their, of their, yeah. of their earnings numbers. Um, whereas, you know, We've got a global decentralized ledger, which is completely open. We can see, you know, with a 10 minute update and that's, you know, that's wonderful from a data, from a research perspective. Um, we can't tell, can we tell the um, geographics of wallet addresses or not? There's been work done on it. Um, so I can't remember the methodology that, uh, chain chain analysis have applied. So chain analysis do a crypto adoption um, annual update, and it's not so it's not Bitcoin specific, um, but they do look at data which is like your IP address. So oh. it's not perfect, and it's a little bit creepy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but IP addresses, if they're public, everyone's using it. Um, but the IP address doesn't necessarily tell you the accurate underlying story because people use VPNs. Exactly. So it's really hard to tell. The other way to sort of analyze it is to look at a look at the uh, UTC timing, universal timing, and look at when Bitcoin transactions increase and decrease over the course of 24 hours. Oh, I see. And you can map that to the geographies. So I've done this with oh, Tether. Okay, because time zones, because when people are awake. Okay, gotcha. 
Yeah. So you can sort of see like with Tether on the Ethereum blockchain tends to see its largest surge in activity at the end of the Asian day leading into the Middle East, leading into India, Middle East, Africa, up into the European um, Open. And so from that, I've just been able to sort of, you know, ascertain it's not you know, exactly scientific, but it's a guide that there's a lot of tether usage happening out of Africa and Middle East and, hmm. you know, and Asia as well. So I haven't done it for Bitcoin, but it has been done. Okay. Cool. 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 All right. Let's talk fees because everybody's, well, because I actually had a really interesting uh, presentation on the weekend about what we might expect with fees as time goes on. So can you, um, yeah, can you run us through a bit about this? Sure. So in, just in terms of what the numbers are saying, um, <clears throat> we've, seen a, we've seen a very sizable uptick in fees over the last 12 months, which is great because fees are part of the security budget or the, the payments that the miners receive to incentivize to secure the network. So, and, and some of that is definitely ordinals related. Um, they've just provided a new... Um, a new use case for the for the blockchain at a time when it wasn't being used as much as it has been historically, at least this you know the first six to nine months of 2023. So we've seen a real pickup in fees. Some of that is due to the Bitcoin price as well because it's priced in the um, you know it's priced in Bitcoin and the Bitcoin price has gone up over 100 percent. but you can see that fees have gone up even more than that. and so there has been a general uptick in usage on the network this year. And that's been expressed in fees, which is great. And so <clears throat> we can also see that the hash rate is, you know, at nearly 500 exahash, 99th percentile. I actually say that the hash rate is the best indicator for Bitcoin. It is the one, if there was only, if I was left on a st stranded island and there was only one metric that I could look at to understand whether Bitcoin was healthy, it would be the hash rate. So why is that? Um, as someone who really has never deeply understood, I mean, I, I understand what the hash rate is referring to, but why is it the sign of health? The sign? Because miners have to miners have to spend capital in order to participate as a miner on the network. So they can only do that if there is an incentive to do that. So it's a it's a signal that. This, this network is valuable for whatever reason, whether it's just, you know, they believe the price will go up or it's providing a real-world service and they're prepared to put billions of dollars of capital to secure that network and make it strong. And so if, every, if everything else was, if I was not able to look at any other on-chain data, then I would just want to know that that is the, you know, the, the core underpinning is the proof of work consensus model. And so that is being supported by real capital moving in and doing the work, that proof of work to trans to process the transactions and keep the whole network running. Because without it, there is no network. Okay, I get that. So it's the health of the network. I suppose what um, the conflict always is in my mind when I hear people say that, and, and give a lot of emphasis to the hash rate is we can have a healthy network, but unless people are adopting it, um, you know, unless we're getting demand, 
for the for the end product as it were then does it matter how healthy i mean we always want a healthy network we always want a, a, a secure decentralized network but isn't it more about i'm interested that out of all of these metrics and you've gone through adoption but hash rate is the one that matters most to you because in my mind adoption is is more critical at some level and maybe unless i'm just thinking in terms of number go up or um using it as a medium of exchange across the world yeah i mean it's they're all interrelated and it's like it's really hard to disentangle all the metrics and say right this is the one that matters the most like i've actually done like linear regressions so just looking at the relationship with the price to all these different metrics which one explains the price better and you've got some metrics which explain price reasonably well others that do not um you know active addresses is a very strong metric hash rate and 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 difficulty are very closely related as well so just from a statistical standpoint but then you've always got to step back from the stats and say what is it actually telling us and so when you've got um the hash rate going up from early adopters now to nation states they're effectively flagging they're effectively forward looking and saying hey Uh. this is serious we are going to invest capital private enterprise first now nation states we're investing in this because you know this network has value whatever reason they may use to describe it the best signal is capital right that that's essentially your pure signal and capital is flowing in to support the network and so you know i might get a little like you know upset that i don't see active addresses going up as much or transaction values going up as much but I feel a lot more comfortable knowing that billions of dollars are going in to secure the network. Oh, that was a real penny drop moment for me. Thank you. That's great. All right. Got it. All right. Tell me about this Z score because I've seen this before as well. And I'm sure I've heard uh, Checkmate talk about it. And I, um, I don't know very much about it. Yeah, it's just another way to sort of represent where the price is relative to the on-chain fundamentals. So is a price deviated a long way from what the un- underlying um, adoption metric is saying? So in the same way as we look at, um, when we look at companies or equities, we usually use multiples, a price to earnings multiple, a price to book multiple. They don't necessarily have like um, an exact correlation to performance, although there is in this case, but those relationships change. It gives you a sense of where the network value is, the price, relative to that adoption rate. And so the Z scores here are 1.9 and 1.2, which is just saying um, price to active addresses is about 1.9 standard deviations above the mean, so above the average. So price is more more expensive than, or the network value is more expensive relative to the active addresses when we look at it over sort of a one-year period. And so is the MVRV, which is, you have to break this down a little bit, MVRV, market value to realized value. So the market cap to the value of all the coins last moved. And so that kind of gives us a cost basis. I'm sure James has has talked about that. He is definitely the guru on on chain metrics. Um, So they are trading above their average, but when we look at them historically, 
they get very high in the bull markets. And so the color coding here is just an easy way to say, hey, it's a bit expensive, but it's not anywhere near the troubling um, levels that we've seen every single market peak. Um, and I can maybe just vis help visualize that here on this chart. If we look at um, this one here. So this is MVRV in pink um, versus the price. And you, you can see the red line represents six standard deviations. And wow. so once we get into those sort of kind of scary levels, those eye-watering levels where, let's face it, when you're at that level, most people who own Bitcoin are in a profit. And so when you've got so much profit-taking potential in the price, you're going to start seeing profit-taking. It's just a matter of time. Like there is, there is gravity that exerts itself in all assets, in all prices. And so when you get to those levels, it's time to sort of start. If you're a hodler, maybe it doesn't matter. But certainly if, um, you know, the traditional finance industry looks at assets, they look at, you know, trading them. They'll start looking at these metrics that, you know, on-chain guys have been looking at for a long time and, you know, adopting them into their sort of into their mix. And so that may change the way the relationship over time. That may mean that we don't get to six standard deviations this bull market because profit taking comes in. So there's, you know, these, none of these things are static, but it's a very good way to sort of see where we are in relationship to where we've been in the past. Uh, have you plotted that against fear and greed as well, the fear and greed index? No, no, I'm I haven't. assuming it's got to be similar. It's got to have a high correlation. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, there's so many different ways to express fear and greed. Um, yes. But, you know, I looked at another metric earlier today, which was the percent of people who own Bitcoin who are now in profit with the price at 38%. Oh, uh, yeah. It's because there was so much um, volume traded in the 20 to, tw well, 25 to 30 range over the last two years, that 80% of people, uh, on their average holdings, the average price of all their Bitcoin are in profit. So <clears throat> unfortunately, people that bought at 60 and didn't average in over the last couple of years, they're the 20%. Yeah. But the network is starting to get into profitable area. But that's not generally a concern from a market sentiment standpoint. It needs to go a lot higher before you see um, you know, profit-taking Obviously, the people who believe in this network over the long term, over multi-generations, they're not going to be selling. Um, and the conviction's growing in that in that cohort um, more than ever. Uh, how do you know that? Well, the way that the network behaved in 2022. So we've seen in previous bear markets that actually active addresses will fall a lot. And also the um, hodlers will also... 20, 2017 was this massive capitulation on the network like a lot of people gave up hope and so i wonder if i've got that chart yeah i've got the chart here so this is this is active addresses um i'm gonna sorry flick through i know that that's okay. annoying but oh this one here okay so this looks at accumulation addresses so let's just make this a little bit clearer so these are the addresses, which I like to use, or the, the proxy I like to use for hodling behavior. And so accumulation addresses, it's an address that's received some Bitcoin, not once, but twice and never sold. And so look at the difference between 
the last bull market, the last two bull markets. In 2017 was this hype cycle. It was way too early for, for Bitcoin to go mainstream. You had an unbelievable retail frenzy. It peaked with price and it collapsed by about 25%. Yeah. Then it started to climb in the bear market and started to break out again. And it broke out before the bull market really even sort of started. But what happened in the last bear market of 2022 and 2023, it actually, with the price peaking, what did it do? It just went up. So, and it continued to go up. It actually went up a lot on the FTX collapse. So, the, wow. the the study of price is the study of supply and demand. And so even though price fell, the, the people that were accumulating maybe weren't whales mm. because they weren't able to influence the price enough for it to have stopped falling during that bear market. But eventually the supply and demand moved more in the favour of the hodlers and a bottom formed because they kept on scooping up um, uh, coins and not selling it through the bear market Unlike 2017, 2008, sorry, 2018, when, you know, basically there was capitulation, uh, you know, 25% of the, the hodlers went, I'm out and left and probably came back in one year, two years, five years later, who knows? But this was a very different bear market. And so with each cycle, you're seeing a solidification of the, or the resolve of the Bitcoin network to continue to buy and take supply and hold it for a longer time. Now, some of those hodlers are going to sell in this bull market. It's inevitable, whether it's, you know, for personal reasons because they need they need the cash or whether they lose faith in the network. But the characteristics of the last bear market tell me that, you know, we've got a very strong network, at least from the perspective of this is a scarce digital asset and I want to hold it because I think we are going to be debased and debased at ever-increasing rates. So many questions going on uh, still. So uh, we talked just before we hit the record button about ETFs and BlackRock in particular and their $8 trillion of funds under management and asset ownership and the fact that they could, you know, to what degree can they uh, huddle and hoard? really, um, or the available Bitcoin supply. And uh, related is the idea that, uh, I don't know if you know, do you know Peter Dunworth? Yes. Here in Australia? I yeah. thought you did. Uh, so one of the things he talked about on my show was the idea that anyone with a printer, so the central banks, if and when they do decide to add 1% Bitcoin to their treasuries, could um just print money buy bitcoin so you've got the potential for people like etfs so private and public to just come in and mop up what are your thoughts around that please well we're going to see you know we are going to see the start of this next year will be the start of serious um um, traditional capital moving into the space, traditional finance, traditional um, investment institutions moving in. So it's inevitable that they are going to become far more prevalent in the network. And that's going to change 
the relationships of certain metrics and the way that we need to analyze it. Um, but, you know, ETF, you know, we don't have, it will increase the opacity, I think, uh, of the owners of the network as well. Um, but, I mean, it's, the jury's out as to how, if they're able to do the same sort of um, things that they're able to do in traditional finance. So we pretty much know at this stage that gold is manipulated, that most commodities are manipulated by the cartel of um, banks that run those um, commodities. Like, you know, there's certain um, banks that sort of are the, um, the primary banks or institutions which house certain base metals. There's the gold bullion banks. There's about five of them that sort of control the um, selling, the institutional um, selling of um, gold within the financial system. And, of course, you know, they're all private ledgers. Like we have that we have no way of verifying or um, there's no authenticity in, in what they print as their reserves or print as their inventory versus what there actually is. And we know for a fact that in many cases it's not always what it is. And plus you've got the, you know, the, the, the frequency of the updates as well. Um, so, you know, another example of that is like we kind of, we kind of have an idea of how much gold China has, but we don't really know exactly mm. because they'll only provide updates on what the central bank has actually bought like every couple of years. So there isn't the transparency in the traditional markets as there is in Bitcoin. So I, I, I'm not sure or convinced yet, although I'm open to, you know, persuasion that there could be the same kind of shenanigans in the Bitcoin market because of the transparency that it provides and also the type of network that it is like we demand proof right the exchanges are the exchanges have had their had their day in the sun of being basically co-mingling client funds with their funds and and trading off the back of it and the regulations are going to come in and, and sort out those centralized uh, exchanges pretty quick so that's going to clear things up but in terms of the ETF providers they'll have to you know they'll have to disclose their holdings as well but again it's we're trusting those centralized intermediaries to do the right thing. So it's very unclear to me as to how this sort of impacts the market. On one hand, it's wonderful from a flows perspective and for legitimizing it. Um, just um, I'm not sure if the same kind of shenanigans will be conducted by BlackRock that an FTX did. Of course, that may sound ridiculous because BlackRock's a respected institution. But um, we just don't have the same level of transparency um, in the traditional financial markets as we do on Bitcoin. But we're going to see a marriage of the two. And um, you've got a very hypersensitive community of Bitcoiners, which will be, you know, watching everything that happens on chain to see if there's any kind of funny business. Yeah, OK, that's that's very true. I'm going to have to uh, move us towards two things. I'm going to ask for a price prediction for the medium term and then for the longer term. And so let me just frame up the question around the medium term. So what I mean by the medium term is the, uh, the current cycle. So, you know, through the halving for the kind of 18 months to two years beyond the halving. So really, in effect, when we're expecting the next peak. Um, so I'm going to ask for a price prediction for the all-time high in this cycle. 
with two thoughts in common. One is on the one side, you've got the Ben Cohen's talking about, you know, diminishing returns. On the other side, you've got people talking about this is the last time before institutions get in and we, you know, we see crazy movement. So you've got a couple of different schools of thought going on out there at the moment. Where do you sit? So I did the price projections in June. I said it would be 39,000 by November. It got to 38. Um, and then I projected a range of 150 to 180. Mm -hmm. um, I actually had a, a base case or a sort of bear case of around 92,000, but the moderate to bull case is around 150 to 180, if I remember correctly. Um, so that's just, and, and that is really not a very scientific approach. You look at what Ben Cohen talks about in diminishing returns. I, I sympathize with that understanding as assets get larger in value, then in theory, the price moves become less on each new bull market mm -hmm. because there's just so much more capital that it takes to move at 1% when you're a $3 trillion asset versus a $500 billion asset. Um, but, you know, it doesn't matter too much whether I'm right or wrong because, you know, I want to, I know that it's going to outperform other assets. So that's the most important thing. So I've only really looked out to the, the latest cycle and said, right, this is the return in the last cycle. It, it did about, I can't remember the numbers, but it was, you know, substantially less in the 2020, yeah. so from the. 13, 14 cycle into 16, 17, into um, 2021 um, and just looked at that moderation of returns. That's how I got to my numbers, but I used sort of uh, different sort of scales to get from sort of 90,000 to 180,000. And look, that's really non-scientific. Um, another way to look at it is what would active addresses need to be given the correlation of active addresses to the price be for Bitcoin to get to 180,000 in price. And I'm, we'd have to see um, active addresses get to about 1.5 million. It's at 1 million today. So that's a lot. That's a lot of new users to justify the price increase. But the thing that sort of makes that really hard to gauge the cycle is because you've got all this investment capital coming in that's not using the network, but is using an ETF investment vehicle which could just basically soak up supply. So you'll get, you know, maybe not the sort of usage increase that you would normally think based on historical correlations because people like, you know, our parents are buying it through some sort of ETF product. They have no intention of using Bitcoin. They won't show up on chain, but they'll show up in the, in the BlackRock wallet for the ETF or whatever. Mm. So um, I just I just feel strongly that, this is the asset for um, to to protect yourself against debasement, and debasement is certainly the one thing that's constant. So, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's the thing, isn't it? We don't know what price Bitcoin is going to, but we do know the price that the that our current fiat is going to. Uh, I will ask just for the fun of it, if we were to look out three cycles to sort of twenty thirty five to forty which for some people, if we're talking, you know, 12 to 15 years ahead, maybe some people are starting to look towards or hope towards retirement. 
what are your thoughts around that? have you have you thought that kind of distance and beyond um i i actually try not to listen to peter dunworth when it comes to this <laughs> absolutely understandable <laughs> he, he's got to be in the top three bulls in the in the space I, right? i've never heard a price prediction as high as his so i think he's oh you know, i think breed love i think breed love oh really okay yeah but oh, i hope they're right oh, maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm wrong sorry yeah, look, I mean, I sent out a tweet the other day. It was like, um, I think what we really want to hope for, because what what does it actually mean if Bitcoin is a million dollars in 10 years' time? Unfortunately, it means a lot of pain, a lot of anguish, and maybe a lot of deaths. Right. Because this system is killing us, and yeah. it is creating a massive divide in the populations around the world between the haves and the have-nots which comes back to the underlying principles of Keynesian economics, fiat fractional reserve banking. And so there's a part of me that, you know, I would say more so than the, than the get wealthy phase is like, you know, Bitcoin is, is trying to keep them honest. They're not listening at this point. Hopefully at some point they do. And we get some moderation of the insanity. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't get to a million in many respects because at that stage it just means the system like they've lost control. We've lost control. Um, so yeah, there's, it's important because that's why, you know, a lot of us are here. Um, but yeah, I think in the meantime, because people in power don't recognize, well, they firstly, they hardly ever admit fault when they do, they'll never apologize, which is fine. I don't want apologies per se. I just want them to, I, I just want better policy. I want a better society. And so between now and that recognition by our policy leaders, and it'll take you, me, and everyone else to vote the right people in or get involved and be proactive, Bitcoin will be a lot higher in that time and we will hopefully not see, you know, complete chaos because of it. But I hope there's an inflection point where price goes up a lot things start to change because it's a signal or they, you know, who knows. Brian DeMint says something very similar about um, simply Bitcoin creates uh, because there's an escape valve, it puts a check or it puts some sort of moderation on, um, on the governments and the central bankers as they currently are simply because there's there's a flight there's an escape valve you know there's a, a flight to value a flight to, to safety um this has been amazing jamie you are just a wealth information and and just a wonderful asset to this space and i've got to say between a few people that we've just talked about between you and james check and peter dunworth and I could name many others. We are particularly, I think, um, uh, blessed here in Australia with just some astonishing smarts. And I don't know whether we're punching above our weight because I expect that the Bitcoin community as a whole is an incredibly kind of smart and capable community. But I just feel absolutely thrilled that A, uh, you are in this space and B, that you've come on the show. Have you got... A, any final words broadly, and B, specifically where we can find you online, please. Well, Carolyn, I really appreciate the opportunity to come and speak to your, to your audience. Um, 
people can find me at uh, on Twitter at, at Jamie1, number one, Coots. Um, I'm also providing content for the Real Vision platform yeah. and uh, a relatively new Bitcoin news site, website called Bitcoin News. I'm starting a research, a research subscription service for them as well. And there might be some other places where you can find my content, but that's where I'm sort of at at the moment. Fantastic. Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time and I look forward to staying in touch and following you. Awesome. Thanks very much for having me. Argentina is right now surviving only because half of the economy is black market economy. That's what keeping Argentina afloat. Half, half of the economy is, is, is black uh, market. And also that had to do a lot with the pandemic. So I see, I see two phenomena. One is Millet and the other one is the pandemic. Because of the pandemic, before that, the people uh, evading taxes was something that was not uh, seen as something good. It was, uh, oh, evading taxes, really bad. And during the pandemics, people said, well, they, they had here the one of the, I was in Spain, but here they had one of the biggest lockdown, lockdowns in the world. It lasted almost uh, a year, a complete year. It was a complete year without kids going to school, without kids going to sports, for example, and, and people practicing sports and etc. It was super, super tough. People got completely fed up with the government and they started to trade between each other. So everybody started to sell something. But that this created this peer-to-peer -peer economy in the neighborhoods that revitalized the, the economy and, and Argentina recovered uh, because of that. And people started to say, okay, you know what? Fuck taxes, I'm going to evade as much as I, as I can. <laughs>